come down here, I realize how short I am. That's really intimidating. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter number 39 this week. Uh, last week, uh, we did not miss out. How many of you were here for the Pi Fellowship last week? Man, I tell you what, Brother Mislin did a great job, didn't he? Uh, we weren't able to record it. If you missed it, you just had to be there. But it was a great message, and uh, I'm excited about what the Lord's doing with our missions giving, and no doubt... Uh, after hearing a message like that and seeing the Lord work in uh, Brother Mislin's uh, ministry as he's there on deputation, I hope that there will come a time when we'll be able to get behind him financially uh, and we'll be uh, pr- obviously prayer partners with him, but uh, excited about what the Lord did last week. But it's been two weeks since I've been with you. And uh, three weeks ago, as we studied through Genesis chapter number 37, Joseph exits the scene where, maybe I should back up, how many of you have not been here in the study thus far? This is your first night. Nobody, okay, so you all know where we're at, so I don't have to do too much pre-work, but three weeks ago we were in Genesis chapter number 37, and uh, we were looking through the uh, betrayal of Joseph's brothers and how they sold him into slavery, and we end Genesis chapter number 37 with Joseph being sold to the Midianites, and then all of a sudden, two weeks ago, Genesis chapter number 38 comes onto the scene, and Joseph is not mentioned at all. Uh, Joseph uh, is there in Egypt, we're going to talk about him this week, but two weeks ago we talked about Judah. And we talked about uh, the darkest passage, one of the darkest passages in all of the word of God in Genesis chapter number 38 and uh, the things that Judah participated in. But aren't you thankful that when we are willing to give up our will that God can take a mess and make a message. He can take, make victims, uh, take victims and make them victors. God took Judah and he brought forth his son, Jesus Christ, through the line of Judah. And in spite of all the nonsense that went on in Genesis chapter number 38, God was still in control. God was still sovereign. And so now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter number 39. So from Genesis chapter number 37, where we left off in Joseph's life, skip forward uh, to Genesis chapter number 39, all that's taken place with Judah. Ten years passes from the scene in the life of Joseph. There's been, it's been ten years since he was sold into slavery. So we pick up our reading. We're just going to read the first 12 um, verses. I'm going to separate this into two messages. Next week we'll also be looking at chapter number 39. Uh, but let's look at the first 12 verses. Read with me Genesis chapter number 39 and verse number 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him of the hand, excuse me, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in the house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake." And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had, uh, left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, Lie with me. And he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath in my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. For just a moment tonight, I'd like to talk to you about this subject in the life of Joseph and in our series through the sovereignty of God. Joseph, it's time to take the test. 
Joseph, it's time to take the test. Let's say a brief word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank, uh, thank you again, as has already been mentioned by Brother Paul, that we have the opportunity to break from the week and to spend some time encouraging one another, uh, bringing our, our, uh, our thoughts and our prayers, uh, bringing our, our requirements, our requests to you, Lord, in prayer. Lord, we're thankful that we are able to exercise the liberty to pray and not to just pray to some God that's dead and offer offerings to someone that's dead. We serve a risen Savior and you're able to commune with us and to communicate with us and you want to see, uh, you want to see us, uh, you, want to, you want to work in our lives in the midst of our circumstances, and we're thankful that Wednesday night service is an opportunity for us to break from the week and to just bring things to you and be encouraged. Lord, I pray as we study through the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter number 39 that you'd help us to see something that we can apply in our own lives. Uh, Lord, I'm going to get to it, but Satan has his crosshairs on everybody in this room, and he wants to see us fail. But you want to see us succeed, but it's going to come at a cost. It's going to come by uh, adhering to your will and by following your process. Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us to learn something about you tonight, Lord. I pray that we learn something about ourselves and how we can love you better and serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for reading with me. <clears throat> uh, as we pick up in our text again, Joseph has been in Egypt for about 10 years. Uh, he was about 17 years old when his brothers threw him uh, into the pit and sold him into slavery. So we can deduct that about 10 years later, Joseph's in his mid-20s, probably about 27 years of age. And so here he is in Egypt, and he's seemingly forgotten by all those that loved Joseph. And now it's time for Joseph to move on in his life. It's time to him, for him to go ahead and progress. But if there's anything that we've learned thus far in the life of Joseph, it is this. Because God is sovereign, he's going to have his will accomplished. Would you agree with that? God is sovereign. We have a free will. We can deter from uh, the will of our Father as well as circumstances can bring forth what we deem as roadblocks but what God deems as the plan anyways. God is going to accomplish his will in the life of Joseph. Uh, and so God knew exactly where Joseph was. He was forgotten by his family, but he was not forgotten by God. God never forgot about Joseph. The Bible tells us that Joseph is placed on the trading block, but because of his Hebrew appearance, he stood out amongst all the other slaves. He was a Hebrew, and so no doubt Joseph was probably very physically fit. We know this from the text that he's young. We also know this from the text that, uh, I don't know, Joseph probably was pretty attractive, pretty nice-looking guy. For, for Potiphar's wife to, to, to be so persistent in her advances towards Joseph kind of insinuates that he probably didn't look like you, Brother Lance. He probably looked like someone that was attractive. No, I'm just kidding. Joseph was probably attractive, and so nonetheless, Joseph is placed on the showroom floor there in Egypt, and Potiphar notices Joseph, and he buys him from the Midianites. So Joseph has gone from the pit to the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, he's captain of the guard, and at the ripe old age of 27 years old, Joseph's narrative isn't exactly going like he had expected Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but God had given Joseph these visions in his dreams, and Joseph was set apart for something that was bigger than Joseph. God had a great purpose for Joseph. He had set apart Joseph for something bigger than himself. He was supposed to rise up to this position of authority and rule over his brothers and his father, yet here he is, servant, a slave in the house of Potiphar. This doesn't look like God is in control. Maybe, maybe Joseph made a mistake or maybe God made a mistake. That can be carnally what we can bring our mind to think. Maybe there's some sort of mistake. Maybe uh, he misinterpreted these, these visions that God gave him. And from the outside looking in, it really looks like God is not in control. But we know this. God is sovereign. Look at verse number two. It says, And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Look at this. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. You know, the saying goes that you can't keep a good man down. Can I tell you something? Can I add to, add to that? Can I maybe correct it a little bit? You can't keep God's man down. When you follow the will of the Father, it might, from the outside looking in, it might look like your life is in shambles and your life is in rubbish, but I can tell you right now, if you follow the hand of God, God is going to prosper you. You cannot keep God's man down. As long as Joseph kept his heart tender to the leading of the Holy Spirit and he was filled with the Spirit, even though it didn't look like it, God was going to use Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Something interesting to note about Joseph is, although he's considered to be one of the patriarchs of the faith, uh, we know the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. He's cons considered to be one of the fathers of our faith. But unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, Joseph never had a face-to-face -face encounter with God. Isn't that interesting? 
Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all had face-to-face encounters with God, but Joseph never had a face-to-face encounter with God. You know what that is? That's an encouragement to us. That is an encouragement to the believer. How many of you have ever seen God face-to-face? I'm afraid that someone would raise their hand. No one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God face-to-face. Joseph didn't either. But you know what that teaches us? You don't have to see God. You don't have to see God even work in huge, miraculous ways to serve like Joseph served. To be faithful like Joseph was faithful, you don't have to have God display himself in such a miraculous way. Matter of fact, up, to, up until this point, I'm talking humanly speaking and comparatively speaking, as God showed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph really didn't see God move in a miraculous way as far as Joseph is concerned, but he was still faithful to following the process of God. In our text, we find two major tests. We're going to go over them tonight. Two major tests that Joseph faced that proved pivotal in his life and helped mold him into the vessel that God needed Joseph to be so that God could use him how he wanted to use him. He goes through two major tests in his life that proved absolutely pivotal. Either he passes the test and continues in his progression and following the plan of God, but if he failed these tests, everything would be abolished that Joseph, that God had worked very hard to accomplish in Joseph's life. These were two major tests. These weren't two uh, little, little, uh, just little quizzes that Joseph had to endeavor. No, they were major tests tests of his character. We're going to look at them tonight. Number one, I want you to write this down. The test of prosperity. The test of prosperity. It would be difficult to find a greater example of progression to prosperity than that of Joseph in Potiphar's house in Genesis chapter number 39. As a matter of fact, in the first six verses, what words do we see in the first six verses? We see words like prosperous, blessed, overseer, Favor, all these words and more are mentioned several times in direct regard to Joseph in the first six verses. Joseph was a man that had, God had his hand upon. Joseph was a man that God was using as his vessel to accomplish great things. But can I tell you something this evening? Blessing, prosperity, favoritism, abundance has ruined more people than failure has. Did you hear me? Prosperity, the blessings, and, and, and the rise to prominence has ruined more people than failure has. Just because Joseph has found himself with the keys to Potiphar's house doesn't mean that Joseph is out of harm's way just yet. Matter of fact, he's more in harm's way now because now he's prospering. Prosperity could be the best thing for Joseph or it could end up being the worst thing for Joseph few things I'd like you to notice of Joseph's prosperity. Letter A, it was a position of prominence. It was a position of prominence. Now Joseph is second in command in the house of Potiphar. Look at verse number four. It says, and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and over all that he had, he put into his hand. I want you to wrap your mind around this. This is Joseph. How old is he? He's about 27 years young. 27 years young, and Joseph is placed as second in command in the house of Potiphar. Let me ask you a question. How many 20-something-year-olds do you know have been put in a major authority role, and it's worked out in the end? Usually it doesn't go that way. Case in point, I don't even know why pastor lets me preach on a regular basis. That's not very discerning. No, I'm just kidding. But he's 27. Who said amen? How dare you? He's 20-something years young, and now he's been placed. He's got this authority, this great amount of burden and uh, reign of authority placed on the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was so good at his job as ruler over the house of Potiphar that verse number 6 says, And he left all that he had in, the, in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. So Potiphar was so entrusting with his belongings that he gives everything that he has to Joseph and it, doesn't, it says that he doesn't even know what he has. All, he's, all he knows is, hey Joseph, what time is dinner? That's all I need to know. Everything else you can have full authority over. All I need to know is, what bread are we eating tonight? Why would Potiphar entrust so much to a Hebrew slave? Simply put, Joseph was trustworthy. Joseph was trustworthy. Joseph had a little word called integrity. Joseph was a man of character. Yes, Joseph was filled with the spirit of God. We learned that last week. Uh, I talked about it last week just a little bit. Genesis chapter number 41, verse 38 says, And Pharaoh said unto his servant, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is? What a testimony that Joseph had. He had this testimony. He was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, Joseph was spiritual, but it was more than just his spirituality. Are you getting what I'm trying to say? He was a man of integrity. 
He was a man of character. You say, Lamar, that's the same thing. No, it's not. It's not the same thing. I'd have you believe that you can't be fully spiritual without being uh, filled with integrity and filled with character, but I can tell you right now that there are people that uh, are very spiritual. Man, they walk with God, they read their Bible, they pray, they give to missions and so forth, but they haven't been on time for a service in years. That wasn't really popular, but hey, it's a, it's a sign of a lack of character when you can't keep good time. Uh, maybe you commit to doing something and you want to help with a particular activity at work or in church, and then you don't show up or you don't come through. You say, Lamar, does that make me unspiritual? No, nah, not really. It doesn't make you unspiritual, but it means you lack a little bit of character, a little bit of integrity. Joseph's rise to prominence was not just because he was spirit-filled, but because he was a man of impeccable character. He was a man of integrity. He rose to a position of prominence. Secondly, letter B, write this down. He had a powerful presence. He had a powerful presence. The scripture tells us in verse number two, and the Lord was with Joseph. Verse number three, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. Skip down to verse number five. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for whose sake? Joseph's sake, and the blessings of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. I'm starting to get the persuasion that the Lord might have been with Joseph. (laughs) The thing about the presence of the Lord upon Joseph is this. It was very contagious. It was very contagious. Because Joseph had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of God spilled over into the life of everybody that was around Joseph. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but when you get around somebody that has been uh, spending time in the word of God and that walks with God and is filled with the spirit, man, don't you get a blessing? Every time, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but every time I'm with the Gascoigns, I'm getting blessed. Every time I'm with Brother Clem, Brother, Brother uh, Mayfield, I'm getting blessed. Why? Because they're filled with the spirit. I don't even have to be filled with the spirit, but when I'm around people that are filled with the spirit and walk with God, I get to reap some of the benefits. This past week, we were... Um, uh, over at Pastor's house for Thanksgiving, and uh, we were talking about several different things. Is Luke and Melody in here? Good, so I can talk about them. So Luke and Melody were, oh, who's back there? Is that Melody? Okay, plug your ears, Melody. This is going to make you look bad. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, we were talking about a bunch of different things, and this is random, but this is just how my brain works, but uh, they were talking about their love for garlic. They love garlic, and they said that they used to use, they used to measure out and portion out how much garlic that they would put in anything, but now it's just gotten, just put the garlic in there. Just throw whole cloves. doesn't even matter. And you know what my wife's response was, and I kind of chuckled. She said, oh, we know. <laughs> oh, we know. If you know this about garlic, you know that if you eat a lot of garlic... Everybody around you is going to know that you eat a lot of garlic. It begins to seep from your pores. You can brush your teeth 10 times a day and you can still smell the garlic on your breath. Whenever you intake the garlic, it kind of shows, tells everybody else around you that you've been eating garlic. You know what I'm trying to say? Over at man camp, uh, when we were at man camp, you know how we knew that the men were eating steak? And, anyways, let's keep going. Everyone around Joseph, everyone around Joseph were beneficiaries of the blessings of God. He quickly rises to this prominent position in the house of Potiphar because of his character. And he had this powerful presence about him that caused everything he did to prosper. And everyone else around him got to get in on the blessing. The Lord was with Joseph. What was Joseph's response? What was Joseph's response? I challenge you. I want you to study uh, all throughout the life of Joseph, namely Genesis chapter number 39, and you try to find any time in the point in, 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 uh, in the life of Joseph where he came to the point where he began to take self-credit for what God was doing in his life. Look at the life of Joseph, and you will never, ever, ever find it said of Joseph that he took credit for what God was doing in his life. He was always quick to give God the glory. Again, prosperity can be the best thing for Joseph, or it could be the worst thing for Joseph. He's 27 years old, and I know a lot of 27-year-olds, and uh, I can tell you right now that uh, I'll just say in the ministry realm, even bigger than that, in any kind of realm, but namely the ministry realm, whenever a young man that's my age rises to prominence, usually you know what the tendency is? Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at all these great things that I've accomplished and that I've done, and we begin to point the finger at self rather than beginning to point the finger at God. Not Joseph. Joseph is filled with prosperity because his character and the presence of God, but perhaps an even more dominant characteristic in the life of Joseph is this, humility. Joseph was a humble man. Joseph was, he, was, he humbled himself. He didn't have to be humbled. Do you know that there's a difference 
When you humble yourself, you save a lot of heartache. It is named amongst every single Christian at some point in life to suffer from the area of pride. We are going to be tempted at times to want to take credit for what God is doing in our lives. You better humble yourself before God humbles you. God's sovereign. He's going to get his will. You better humble yourself before God humbles you. Joseph was humbled. He humbled himself. The test of prosperity couldn't keep God's man down. He, t- he passed the test of prosperity. But there was a second test that Joseph had to face, and we're going to spend most of our time on the second test. Number two, I want you to notice that Joseph faced the test of purity. The test of purity. It's interesting to note in Scripture that at the height of prosperity, it is almost always accompanied by the test of purity. At the height of man's prosperity, mark it down, right around the corner, is probably going to be the test of purity. The most spiritual man in the Bible, David, fell because of purity. The wisest man in the Bible, Solomon. The strongest man in the Bible, Samson. Can I tell you something? The most dangerous time in the life of a Christian is when they're living in victory. The most dangerous time in the life of a Christian is when they begin to rise to prosperity and when they're living on the mountaintop. That's when Satan does his best work. That's when the crosshairs are bigger than they've ever been. When you begin to do great things for God, mark it down, Satan's got his crosshairs on you. Probably one of the most difficult time, Brother Brother Mayfield, the most difficult time in the life of a young person is the Monday they get back from camp. Is that right? The most difficult time in the life of a young person that's just gone through a great week of preaching and seeing God do some great things uh, uh, there at summer camp, the most difficult time that they will ever face is the Monday following senior camp. Uh, We we know, uh, man, the Lord does a great work. Every year I get excited. That's my favorite, one of my favorite times of the year is when I get to see that Sunday, get to see what God is doing in the life of our young people and God has been working and he's been speaking to them every single day of the week. The reason I like our camp versus other camps is we get an extra night of preaching. We don't come home on Friday morning. We come home on Saturday morning. Just one more night for preaching, for God to do something great. And so, man, our young people, I've been on the vans, been on the buses with them when they're coming home and they're different than when we left. God's done a great work in their lives. They cannot wait to get home and tell everybody about it. They go to sleep on Saturday night, wake up Sunday morning, get through the Sunday morning message. Sunday night, we give them the opportunity to share their testimony, and man, they get up, and they share, man, God did this, and I'm going to give up this kind of music, and I'm going to let go of this kind of friend, and I'm not going to watch this kind of TV show, and, and God's doing great things in their life, but then Monday comes, and all of a sudden, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Goldendale anymore. We're not at Camp Grace anymore. We're not at church anymore. And all of a sudden, a young man finds himself alone with his cell phone. All of a sudden, that friend that they were supposed to give to God and not hang around because they were a bad influence comes calling and says, hey, hey, you want to go hang out? Most difficult time in the life of a, a young person is when they get back from summer camp and God's done great things. Can I tell you, the most difficult time, the most dangerous time, I should say, in the life of a believer is when God is moving in great and mighty ways. The higher you climb in your walk with God, the harder Satan fights to see you fall. Here is Joseph on the climb, rising to new heights in the house of Potiphar. And again, we said uh, before that God never forgot about Joseph, but you know who else didn't forget about Joseph? Satan. God never forgot about Joseph. He never neglected Joseph, but Satan never forgot about Joseph either. Satan was watching Joseph prosper, and just as Joseph reached the height of his success in the house of Potiphar, Satan says, okay, it's time for me to, uh, uh, okay, time to work again. No more break. Now I'm going to go, I'm going to go, and I'm going to put my crosshairs back on Joseph. Remember, Joseph is a Hebrew man. Joseph is a young man, probably well-built and physically fit because he's a Hebrew man, and by the obsession with Miss Potiphar, again, we can probably derive from the text that Joseph is pretty easy on the eyes. She's probably very attractive. And so, uh, who, who, let me ask you this. Who was Joseph's mother? Rachel. Rachel is Joseph's mother. What does scripture tell us about Rachel? Leah was tender-eyed, <clears throat> but uh, Rachel was fair to look upon. Rachel was pretty. She was beautiful. And it is from this family that we get the doctrine of children get their good looks from their mother. It's there in the text. Children always get their good looks from their mother. I had to put, pl- plug that in for my wife. My son's good looking. He gets all his good looks from his mother, nothing from me. So Joseph is there in the house of Potiphar, and Miss Potiphar pulls out all the stops to try to tempt Joseph in the area of sexual purity. She's putting everything she can on Joseph. She's trying as hard as she can to see Joseph fall. A few things I'd like you to notice at the test of, uh, excuse me, of purity. 
Letter A, the power of temptation. The power of temptation. Here is Joseph, again, at the height of his prosperity in the house of Potiphar. And along comes this temptation of sexual purity. But understand that this wasn't just a half-hearted attempt by Satan to try to get Joseph to sin. No, he hits Joseph with the most powerful tool in his arsenal in regards to man. I'm talking about males. The area of sexual purity, men, help me out here. The area of sexual purity, if there's an area that I can get men to fall in, it's the area of sexual purity. And Satan knew that about Joseph. If I can get him to fall, I know that I can get him to fall in the area of sexual purity. A few things I'd like you to notice of the power of temptation. Look at verse number six. It was unexpected. Look at verse number six. It was unexpected. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. So everything is going great in the house of Potiphar. And if we went off the first six verses of Genesis chapter number 39, it really seems like Joseph is finally going, excuse me, finally going to rise to the area of authority that God told him that he was going to bring him to in his dreams. Finally, God's going to come through on his commitment to work in the life of Joseph. But then just when he least expected it, verse 7. Just when he least expected it, man, it looked like there was nothing going to stop this train. I'm rising to the position of prominence. God's working great in my life. Verse 7 comes into play, and it hits Joseph right between the eyes. Look at uh, verse number 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. This temptation came out of nowhere. This temptation came in the life of Joseph when he least expected it. Uh, I, I don't remember why me and Brother Chip were talking about this, but we were talking about boxing, and Brother Chip was telling me about Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson is known as one of the most powerful boxers. He had one of the hardest hits uh, amongst uh, uh, all boxers, and so in 1988, on June 27th, Mike Tyson squared away with a man named Michael Spinks. How many of you have heard of or know that fight? Michael Spinks and Mike Tyson go at it. And my, uh, Michael Spinks was a credible boxer of his own, man. He had a, uh, an undefeated, as far as I know, he had an undefeated uh, record as he faced Mike Tyson. He was a lot taller than Mike Tyson. He weighed some 300 plus pounds, and I believe he was about six foot four. And in the first round of the boxing match there on, on June 27th of 1988, Mike Tyson, I think it was in the first three minutes of the first round, Mike Tyson lands a left hook that took this 200, 300 plus pound six foot man and knocked him on his blessed assurance. Knocked him clean out. Knocked him clean out. Mike Tyson, I mean, he, he had one of the most powerful hits, but you know what else he had? He had one of the quickest hits. Those are two combinations that you do not want a boxer to have if you are Michael Spinks. The most powerful boxer, but also the quickest boxer. And you know what he said? You know what Michael Spinks said in a post-match interview? He said, I didn't even know he hit me until I was dizzy on the ground. Do you hear that? I didn't even know he hit me until I was dizzy on the ground. Here it is. I never saw it coming. I never saw it coming. Isn't that how Satan works? Isn't that how Satan works? Sometimes, man, we can see Satan coming from a mile off and God has given us discernment and we can see that Satan's trying to make an advancement. But other times, Satan comes out of nowhere and hits us with a left hook. Sometimes, again, he makes his presence known, but a lot of the times we never see it coming. This temptation of Joseph serves as a reminder for us to always be on guard. Always be on guard. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed. Take heed, lest he fall. In other words, keep your guard up. Keep your guard up against temptation. Keep your guard up against sin. Why? Sometimes t- temptation is unexpected. Letter B. It was unremitting. It was unexpected, but it was also unremitting. Look at verse number 10. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph. What are those next three words? Day by day. And it came to pass as she spake to Joseph. Day by day. The swings kept coming. The temptation was relentless. Every day that Joseph rose his head from his pillow, he could be assured that with the new day came the same temptation. 
Just as the temptation was relentless in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter number 39, we can rest assured that the swings of Satan are just as guaranteed. They're going to keep coming. You might dodge him today, but get ready because another blow is coming tomorrow. Satan never takes a day off. When we, when we flee youthful lust and when we put our hands, when we're sober and we are vigilant on day one, guess what? Satan's preparing for day two. Potiphar's wife, day to day, went unto Joseph. Every single day, she submitted uh, herself unto Joseph to try to get him to fall. It was relentless. Temptation is sometimes unexpected. Mark it down. It's always relentless. Sometimes it's unexpected, but it is always relentless. The blows always come. They keep coming. It was unexpected. It was unremitting. Let her see. It was seemingly unknown. Look at verse number 11. It was seemingly unknown. It came to pass about this time that Joseph went, uh, went unto the house to do his business. Look at this. And there was none of the men of the house there within. All right, Joseph. I've tried to uh, surprise you. I've, I've, I've brought myself. We went from verse number six to verse number seven real quickly. It was unexpected. I've tried day unto day to try to get you to fall. But what if I told you that no one would ever know? What if I told you that no one would ever know if you just lived a little. If you just indulged just a little bit, no one would ever know. Joseph found himself alone with Potiphar's wife. No one was there to point an accusing finger. No one would know if Joseph went in under Potiphar's wife. Potiphar, we know this, he entrusted Joseph, so he probably wouldn't expect anything. Come on in, Joseph, come on. No one's ever gonna know. Just live a little. It was seemingly unexpected, or excuse me, it was seemingly unknown. So it was unexpected, it was unremitting, Seemingly unknown, number four, it would have been understandable. It was understandable. What do you mean? Joseph, at 27 years old, has experienced more difficulty than most of us have experienced our entire lives. One trial after another, Joseph found himself on the receiving end of hardships. And get this, most of the hardships that Joseph endured were not self-inflicted. They weren't his fault. Joseph has every, I mean, along every single message, we've seen that Joseph is on the receiving end of the hits of Satan, and most of it is not Joseph's fault. Along comes this temptation, and because we know the end of the story, we're almost tempted to write off Joseph's temptation because he always made the right decision. We almost kind of write it off. Well, Joseph made the right decision. Can you wrap your mind around everything that we've just spent five, ten minutes developing? Joseph is 27 years old. He's, he suffered some major adversity time and time again. Every time that he gets one step forward, it feels like he's going two steps back. This temptation was a big deal, but it wasn't just something that Joseph just magically did. It had to be a decision. Listen to me. Don't forget about Jacob. Don't forget about Jacob. We talked about that in week number two. Don't forget about Judah. We talked about that two weeks ago. We talked about this. We are not products of our environment. We are not products of our environment. Finish it. We are products of our decisions. We are products of our decisions. And given the fact that Joseph had taken several blows to the face at this point in his life, what is one night with Potiphar's wife going to hurt? Going to hurt. I've followed God every single day along the progression of my life. I've made good decisions, and look where it's got me. It's time for me to get what I deserve. It's time for me to indulge just a little bit. Hey, that's exactly how Satan works. Listen, that's exactly how Satan works. He will come alongside of someone who is walking faithfully with God, and he will convince them that you are entitled to sin just a little bit. He won't call it sin. He won't call it sin. He'll make it look like it's something. We're going to talk about this next week, but he's going to deceive and make us think that it's really for the greater good. In order for Joseph to not go into Potiphar's life, we're, uh, excuse me, Potiphar's wife, we're going to find it costs Joseph greatly. Satan comes alongside of a believer and he begins to convince them, hey, you're entitled to this. It's okay. You have been faithful. You've been a faithful steward of God. Man, you've been faithful all along the way, all along the process. Why don't you just live a little bit? Here's how I said it in Genesis chapter number three. Hath God said, yea, hath God said. You know what that is? That is Satan doing what he does best, deceive. That is Satan at his finest work. He is deceiving. He's trying to convince. Uh, talking about, we're going to talk about this man. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but next week we're going to talk about relative truth and thinking biblically in an, un, an unbiblical world. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve, it wasn't just favorable circumstances, God said that he looked on his creation and said, it is good. It was perfect. 
And even in perfect situations, Adam and Eve had to make the decision to sin. That's how Satan works. He comes alongside of the believer and he convinces them that you are entitled to it. In other words, I think everybody would understand. Listen, I'm just trying to tell you this evening, temptation is a powerful thing. Temptation is a powerful thing. Sometimes it's unexpected. It is always relentless. It's seemingly unknown and probably everybody would understand. The power of temptation, but letter B, I want you to notice this, the power over temptation. The power over temptation. With Joseph, the temptation was unexpected. With Joseph, the temptation was unremitting. With Joseph, the temptation would have been unknown. And with Joseph, falling into temptation would have been understandable. Joseph, it's time to take the test. But Joseph passed. Joseph passed the test with flying colors. Joseph didn't give in. How? How did Joseph not give in? How did Joseph not subdue to temptation? How did Joseph not give in to temptation? How did Joseph have power over temptation? A few things I'd like you to notice quickly. Number one, he had conviction before the crises. Did you hear that? He had conviction before the crises. Joseph did not gather his thoughts on the matter of sexual purity as Potiphar's wife made her advances. Long before she came in unto Joseph and tried to tempt him to fall, he established exactly how not he felt, but how God felt about the matter. Can I tell you something? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Genesis, not Genesis, but Luke chapter number 17 and verse number 1. It says this, then said he, that's Jesus, unto his disciples, it is impossible that offenses will probably come. It is impossible that offenses, um, they're probably going to come for you, Peter. They're probably going to come for you, John. They might not come for you guys. No, what does it say? It is impossible that offenses will come. They will come. Mark it down. Temptation is going to face you. You might not be looking in the face of temptation today, but mark it down. It's coming around the corner. It's coming right on tomorrow. It doesn't matter how mature you are in your faith. Satan is going to try to throw a bone your way to see if he can get you to fall. You better decide now how you are going to response, uh, your, what your response is going to be, and not if they come, but when they come. You better decide now how you feel about conviction, about what God said in his word long before the temptations come. Joseph decided long before Potiphar's wife came calling that he was going to be a man of integrity. Let's look at it, verse number seven. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. And he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is, not, uh, there is none greater in the house than I, neither hath he kept anything back from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Don't think for a second that this was just an off-the-cuff answer that Joseph pulled out of his back pocket. He was faced with this temptation, and he didn't say, hey, uh, let me conclude how I feel about the matter. No, it was a preconceived conviction. It was a preconceived conviction. Listen, the time to determine your convictions are not when the crises come. The time that to, to, to determine how you are going to respond to what God calls sin is not when you are in the moment of adversity. Why? Why? Because we've proven time again that we're not very good at making decisions in the moment. We've proven time and time again that we're not very good at making decisions on the fly. A man gets caught in adultery. A man gets caught in adultery. What's usually his response? Pastor, I just wasn't thinking. God forbid, I haven't seen it happen in our church, but a young person, 16 and pregnant, happened in my church. 16 and pregnant. Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I just wasn't thinking. A young man gets caught in pornography. I just wasn't thinking. Listen, you better develop some strong convictions about sin long before Potiphar's wife comes calling. Joseph knew that he had to have conviction before the crises. Number two, he knew that love involved loyalty. Joseph knew that love involved loyalty. Loyalty to whom? Letter A, Potiphar his master. Look at verse number nine. It says, There is none greater in the house than I, neither hath he, that is Potiphar, kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. 
Joseph understood that giving into temptation wouldn't just affect Joseph, but it would have direct effect on his master, Potiphar. Here's the parallel. You are never the only one who suffers when you fall into temptation. You are never the only one who suffers when you fall into sin. You don't believe me? Ask Jacob. You don't believe me? Ask Judah. Listen, when we give into temptation, the pain that is to follow directly affects our families, our churches, and get this, it even affects the lost and how they view Christ. Where was Joseph? We're going to get this, to this in a minute, but where was Joseph? He was in Egypt. Chapter number 41, we talked about it just a moment ago. Uh, excuse me, Pharaoh looks at the life of Joseph and his reputation is this. He is a man that is filled with the Spirit of God. If Joseph would have given in to temptation, you can kiss his reputation goodbye. You can kiss his testimony goodbye. He would never be an effective witness in the house of Potiphar, namely in Egypt, if he'd have given in to temptation. We're not going to get into it, uh, but, but how many of you are in my Sunday school class in the book of Joshua? Chapter, uh, we're going through the life of Joshua and living the victorious Christian life. And last week, we just looked at the victory that we experienced there in Jericho. God wrought a great victory because the children of Israel followed the progression and the commandment of God. It seemed very unconventional. They weren't sure that it made sense, but they were faithful to follow the process of God. And God wrought a great victory. You know how we close Gen- or, excuse me, Joshua chapter number 6? It says, and the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Whose fame? God's fame. Every single city that they would go into, they trembled in fear, not because of what the Israelites were able to do, but because of the God of the Israelites. Their faithfulness to the plan of God, it brought forth a great representation of who God is. We're going to learn this week, I'm going to give you a little bit of a a, a brain teaser. This week we're going to learn about the sin of Achan. We're going to learn about the sin of Achan. And you know what happened? The sin of Achan goes in and he hides the things under his tent from the spoils uh, 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 there in uh, Jericho. And you know what happens? Uh, Long story short... They get defeated in the very small, by the very small opponent, Ai. And you know what? Joshua go, comes to his knees after the defeat, and he gets on his hands, and he begins to pray, and he says, God, what about thy name? So we close Joshua chapter number 6, and all his fame was noised throughout all the country. All God's fame was noised throughout all, all the country. When God does great things in our life, God gets the victory, God gets the glory. But you know what? As far as the world is concerned, when they're looking at the life of a Christian, you know what happens when we fail? Bad representation on God. Puts a mark on the name of Jesus Christ. Had Joseph given into this temptation, his testimony would have been crumbled to the ground. He knew that love involved loyalty to Potiphar, but secondly, and ultimately, to his Lord. Let her be his Lord. Look at verse number 9 again. There is none greater in the house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? How can, do, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against my countrymen? No. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Joseph understood that giving into this temptation would, have, it would be a direct assault on his loyalty to the Lord himself. Yes, giving into temptation directly affects our families. It affects our churches, and even it affects the world and how they view Jesus. But ultimately, and far more seriously, it affects our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, and our relationship with Jesus. Joseph knew that he had to have conviction before the crises. He knew that the love that he had involved loyalty. Number three, hey, if you've tuned out, tune in. Number three, he had enough sense to avoid the source of temptation. He had enough sense to avoid the source of temptation. Look at verse number 10. And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, man, the hits kept coming, that he hearkened not unto her to to lie by her, what does the next part say? Or to be with her. There indwells the source of Joseph's wisdom. There indwells the source of Joseph's wisdom. His convictions were predetermined. Uh, He knew that love involved loyalty. But above everything else, Joseph knew that even the strongest of convictions and the most loyal of intentions were no match for the power of temptation. Therefore, he chose not to even put himself in the line of fire. 
Joseph had enough sense to avoid the source of temptation. In other words, Joseph knew that he had no power over temptation other than this, to avoid it. My parents are coming this weekend, so you're not allowed to tell them what I'm going to tell you right now. It's another personal illustration, but uh, when I was a young man, it was right around Christmas time, or maybe it was my birthday, I'm not sure, um, but I was probably about seven or eight years old, and uh, <clears throat> uh, my birthday falls right there in the lines of, of uh, Christmas time, so I'm not exactly, hey, don't record, are you recording it? Hey, stop that. But I got this gift. I was about seven, and I got this gift. It was a remote control Jeep. And it wasn't just one of those like, that takes AA batteries. It had special batteries and a charger. It was like this tall. It went really fast. It was super nice. And I was so proud of it. I loved it. And my house, uh, it sits here. And right next to my house, it was the last house on the cul-de-sac. Right next to my house was a wall separating our house from a car wash. Uh, not the drive-through ones, but like, a, a, like an actual uh, wax-on, wax-off kind of place where they're going to do detail work and all those things. It had a big parking lot, and the pavement, oh, it was smooth. Not a single rock chip bump or anything. No cracks, no nothing. It was smooth. So we used to go over, and we'd uh, roller skate, and we'd play hockey, and we'd ride our bikes, our skateboards, and so forth. So me and my friend went, we took this Jeep and went over, and we were playing uh, in the uh, parking lot. There were no cars there, and so it was a lot of space. So we were playing with my remote control car, trying to get it to jump uh, off of the uh, sidewalk and so forth. And uh, it was getting late. It was probably about 6 o'clock. And those of you that know me know uh, that I was not a very bright child, nor am I a bright adult. But anyways, I got the great idea. House is here, and here's the car wash. Right here is uh, Cartwright Road. It's a very busy street right there, Cartwright Road. Starting to get dark, and I get this great idea. How much you want to bet that I can get my car, my remote control car, to zoom across <laughs> as close to the cars as possible without getting hit? <laughs> yeah. Lamar, you're not very bright. I know, but that's what we did as kids. We thought it was the, awesome, the greatest thing. So we get behind the wall, and uh, a car begins to come. I have, a little, I have it pushed back a little bit so it can get some momentum. And I mean, I'm just timing it. I'm timing it. And right as that car comes by, whoosh, goes right across, made it. Boom. Uh, it was awesome. Man, it barely made it across, but it made it across. And we did that again. Uh, another car came, did it again. Another car came, did it again. We did it about three times, and not one time did it run over my, my uh, remote control Jeep. And then uh, the next car we could see was coming about a quarter mile down, and it was a semi-truck. <laughs> it was a semi-truck, and it was going, speed limits, about 30 miles an hour. And I say, watch this. How much you want to bet that I can get this remote control car to go underneath the semi? No, there's no way. There's no way you can do it. Watch me. So I get it, and I'm timing it. And it's coming down, and right as it passes, I, I hit the forward button, and it goes forward, and it goes underneath that semi, and it got so close to going underneath the semi, but the back, just the back, maybe two inches of that 18-wheeler, it crushed my Jeep to smithereens. I mean, it, it abolished, it destroyed it. Not a single piece was left. The tire, everything just flew into uh, uh, the abyss. I mean, it was, it was ruined. And I was devastated. I was so I, I mean, I tell you what, I was at the point of tears. My car is now in ruins. Some of you are like, Lamar, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows that when you play in the street, you're probably going to get hit. That's how temptation works. That's how temptation works. We love to flirt with temptation. We love to get as close to the edge as we possibly can, but then we act absolutely shocked when we fall into sin. <clears throat> When it comes to temptation, again, we love to get as close to the edge as possible, but not Joseph. Look at verse number nine again. It says, as she spake to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not on her, unto her to lie, uh, to lie by her or to be with her. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? You've ever been to the Grand Canyon, okay? I, I got to go. This was probably about 20 years ago. I was only uh, just uh, maybe, maybe four or five years old. I got to go to the Grand Canyon. And so um, the Grand Canyon is a magnificent, a magnificent sight. If you've never seen it, you ought to go. It's beautiful. Uh, just a display of God's handiwork. But um, one thing that I would say about the Grand Canyon is I like to watch it on TV, but being there in person was very intimidating and very scary. I mean, seriously, it was, it was very scary. And I was curious, I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I just Googled it. This is probably not a reliable source, but I just kind of typed it in Google. How many people die on average by falling into the Grand Canyon? And uh, this page popped up, a report, and so I, I looked at the report, and it said that I think it was since 2006, on average, 12 to 15 people die by falling into the Grand Canyon. 
And it went on to say, it said that the reason that they fall, because they don't want to alarm people, they say the reason that they fall was this, because they got too close to the edge. They got too close to the edge, and either they tripped and lost their balance and fell in, or maybe, man, there's some heavy winds that come through and it picks them up. But if, you're, if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, I'll tell you, this is what I did. If this is the Grand Canyon, this is what I did. I'm like way back here. I don't want to get very close Hey, I can observe it from way back here. It's very nice, but I'm not going to test it. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. How many of you disagree? You're going to get as close to the edge as you possibly can. See, uh, yeah, you're the same kind of people that probably use your remote control car to, to, to go across. No, I'm just kidding. I try to stay as far away from the edge as possible. And again, that's a perfect illustration of how we handle sin. That's exactly how we see temptation. You say, Lamar, is it not my liberty? Am I not exercising my liberty in Christ to get as close to the edge as possible without sinning? Absolutely you are. Let me tell you something that we love to do is we love to search the word of God and find out what it says that we don't have to do. We like to search the word of God and we're trying to find chapter and verse doesn't say it, therefore I can participate in it. We're talking about conviction, but we're also talking about this thing called discernment in a word that we don't like to use in a Baptist church. It's called standards. We hate standards. Matter of fact, and, and I understand the connotation is it's been abused over the course of time and people have standards that are just random, but I'm, I'm simply saying that there's a lot that the word of God doesn't say, but it insinuates. There's a lot that the word of God says that it, it, it might not say that you're not supposed to do this, but it does everything but say you're not supposed to do that. You're exercising your liberty, but you don't have a lot of discernment. Speaking of liberty, can I have just a little bit? Pastor, you chase rabbits all the time. The Lord's just been working on my heart about something, and I'd like to share it with you. It's, it's connected to, we're talking about discernment, and we're talking about standards. This might be very unpopular. It, I know it's unpopular, but in the light of something that's happening right now in the life of somebody that I know personally, I, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to say this in regards to standards, in regards to uh, discernment. Um, parents, your 14, 15, 16, 17, even 18-year-old children, in my opinion, have no business having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I didn't, I didn't expect that I'd have you know, a bunch of hoot and hollering. I, I understand that, uh, Lamar, it doesn't say in the word. I understand. I agree. It does not say in the word of God that you are not allowed to enter into a relationship with someone of the opposite sex until you reach 19 or 20 years old. I'm not saying that, but I'm simply saying that, um, let's be honest, a, a teenager's mind is not running on all cylinders, but their hormones are. Exercising your liberty says that it's okay for them to have a relationship but it's not very discerning. How do you know, Lamar? You, you gotta understand. I know everything that goes on. I'm heavily invested in the relationship. I know everything that goes on. Uh, it's 2018. No, you don't. You have no clue about probably, I'd say probably 25, 30% of the conversations that go on. Right now, there's a teenager whose heart is beating out of their chest. That's conviction. You know how I know that? Is because my dad, and I say this to my shame, and it wasn't my dad's fault, but my dad was a pastor. I was a pastor's kid, and you know what his standard was? You will not have a girlfriend until you get to college. You know I had a girlfriend when I was in college, or excuse me, when I was in high school? My dad never knew about it, and it wasn't her. There's things that can go on in the life of a young person, and, and I can tell you right now, I'm not saying that they're inherently wicked. We're gonna learn next week that we are wicked to the core, but there's just something that happens in the life of a young person where they don't have a lot of the discernment, so you ought to. Again, that's unpopular. I think I would get agreement from my pastor, and I know I get agreement from our youth pastor. It's not very discerning to allow a young person whose hormones are running rampant to have a relationship. You can take it or leave it. Is it, ex is it violating scripture? No. Not very discerning. Men, I'll talk to the ladies in a minute. Men, you have no business having a best friend that is of the opposite sex. You have no business having a relationship with, uh, with ladies. You have no business having a relationship, uh, uh, having a, a best friend that's a man. You have no business. I didn't do any research. This is totally off the cuff. I can tell you right now that this, this statistic is probably not 100% accurate, but it's very close. Probably 99.6% accurate, this, this statistic. <laughs> I'd probably say that 99% of affairs and uh, 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 when we find it in the church, adultery, adulterous relationships start with a friendship between someone who is not their spouse. 
I'm just telling you right now, uh, I'm not saying you can't have friends that are of the opposite sex, but I'm just telling you right now, having private conversations and text messages, uh, so forth, that are ongoing and ongoing, let alone, I'm telling you what, it's not, I'm not saying it's not biblical, but it's really undiscerning to ever be alone with someone that is of the opposite sex that is not your spouse. Is it violating scripture? Not really. I mean, we could try to fit scripture. To, the scripture does not say you're not allowed to have a friend that is of the opposite sex, but discernment says it's unwise. Skipping church, is a, it's flirting with a form of idolatry. Skipping church, is a, it's flirting with a form of idolatry. You, you say it's idolatry? No, it's, I'm saying it's flirting with a form of idolatry. There's something that is heavy on my heart right now because of... Um, <clears throat> My parents are coming, and we've been just talking about what the, what the Lord has been doing at my church, but can I tell you something that breaks my heart? I am one of maybe three of the 35 people that I can remember that were in the youth department. I'm one of maybe three that are still in church, and you know what happened? Parents said, we're going to skip Wednesday night because you need to study for a test. We're going to skip a Wednesday night because I need you to get a good night's sleep for, uh, for school tomorrow. We want to be really sharp. I want the best for my children's education. Can I tell you something? I know that the Bible does say forsake, not the assembly, and I'll leave that up to pastor to, to decipher what that means and whether or not it's directly sinful to skip Wednesday night services, but it's not very discerning. We flirt with temptation in regards to this area of a church attendance and we put things like school and things like our job and so forth over our relationship with the Lord. And then when our kids grow up and they go to college, we act absolutely shocked when they don't go back to church. It's not violating the scripture. It's exercising your liberty, but it's not very discerning. I'm simply saying that before you exercise your liberty, maybe you ought to exercise sobriety and vigilance. Before you are liberated, be discerning. It's okay to have standards. Matter of fact, it's wise. Ask Joseph. Joseph had enough sense to avoid the source of temptation. Number four, quickly, we gotta go quickly. He was not desensitized to sin. Verse number nine. He was not desensitized to sin. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph didn't just identify the sin, he was disgusted with the sin. It wasn't just the action that disgusted him, it was the very idea of it. How, how then can I even do this great wickedness and sin against God? I can't even comprehend it. I can't, I can't, even, I can't even begin to comprehend the idea of me going into you and violating the loyalty and the love and the trust that I have with Potiphar, namely my God. I can't even fathom it. Again, question, where, where was Joseph at this point? He's in Egypt. Egypt is a picture of what? Old Testament picture of what? The world, speak out. It's a picture of what? The world. Egypt is an Old Testament picture of the world. Why is that? Because the day-to-day -day filthiness and fornication that was found in Egypt is exactly the same as we find in our world today, today maybe even worse. Joseph is living there in Egypt, and again, this is not his first day in Egypt. He's been there for 10 years. No doubt he's seen this kind of wickedness before. The sin was so common. Yet Joseph's disgust for what God called wickedness never changed. He was not desensitized to sin. We're going to go over this next week. It's hard to think biblically in an unbiblical world. We're gonna talk about this at the close of tonight's service, but the idea of refraining from the things that we're talking about that were rampant in the land of Egypt, our world can't even fathom it. And you know, that world, that's where we go to school, that's where we work. You're living in the world. Have you become desensitized to what God calls wickedness? Joseph was not desensitized to sin, lastly tonight. He knew that retreat was better than defeat. <laughs> Joseph knew that retreat was better than defeat. Look at verse number 11. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went unto his house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in, the, in her hands and fled and got him out. Joseph is there in the house one day, and coincidentally, no one else is home except Potiphar's wife, so she goes over to Joseph and begins to make some advances towards Joseph just, just as she has done every single day. What is Joseph's response? 
I'd like to give you a five-point outline on why this would be a sin against God and a sin against Potiphar. No. Um, excuse me, Ms. Potiphar, why don't, why don't we just bow our heads and close our eyes and just pray? Right? No. What did Joseph do? He ran. He fled. He got out. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. You know what that means in the Hebrew? Joseph bounced. Joseph was gone. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, Flee, flee, also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's not time to defeat temptation. Why? Here it is. You can't. It's not time for Joseph to look in the face of the adversary, the devil, and say, I can take him. Joseph did not have power over temptation. He knew that retreat was better than defeat. He knew that he did not have it within himself to refute the advances of Potiphar's wife for very long. He tried not to even be with her, but this scenario brought temptation out of nowhere, and he booked it. He got himself out. He fleed the temptation. In closing tonight, in closing, I'd like us to consider something you might not have noticed in the life of Joseph. Did you notice that this is the second time that Joseph has lost his coat? <laughs> Parents? How many of you have kids that cannot hold on to a shoe, a sock, a coat? Joseph cannot hold on to a coat to save his life. The first coat we read about a few weeks ago, and no doubt it's the first thing we think about when we think of Joseph. The coat of many colors. The coat of many colors. The coat of many colors was a gift from who? It was a gift from Jacob, Joseph's father. It was a gift of love and appreciation, a gift of favor and privilege. The second is a little less memorable, but far more important. And it's the text that we just read about in Genesis chapter number 39. What is interesting to note is the contrast in how Joseph lost his two coats. Again, the first coat was maliciously taken from him against his will because of the callousness of the hearts of his brothers. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The coat of privilege was stripped away from Joseph against his will. The loss of this coat teaches us that sometimes bad things happen to God's people and at times we suffer betrayal by those whom we least expect it, but God is still in control. But the loss of the second coat was very different than the loss of the first coat. This coat wasn't taken from Joseph at all against his will. Look at verse number 12. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand. And fled and got him out. This coat wasn't taken from Joseph against his will. Joseph left this coat. And the rest of the chapter tells us, and we're going to talk about this next week, that that would cost Joseph his reputation and put him in prison. The loss of this coat teaches us that fleeing temptation is a choice, not an obligation. And that doing so might cost us our reputation as it costs Joseph. Joseph is there in Egypt, he's in the world, and the, again, the, uh, the, the, just the immorality and the everything that would, would happen there in the nation of Egypt is exactly like it's happening today in the United States. The idea, we're going to talk about this in, oh, I want to preach next week, we're going to talk about this in detail, but the idea that a Christian would refrain from sexual gratification before they're married is absolutely baffling to the world. They can't even comprehend that. The idea that a man would be married and be faithful to his wife all the days of their marriage and not even indulge in any kind of relationship, whether emotional or physical, with another person that is not, not their spouse, the world can't comprehend that. That's ridiculous. I was made fun of about this. The idea that a young man would not uh, engage in sexual gratification by looking at pornography, that especially is absolutely bewildering, bewildering to someone in the world. After everything that Joseph had been through, now he finds himself so close to the top that he can almost taste it. Along comes this temptation, and rejecting the advancements of Potiphar's wife would cost Joseph his reputation that he had worked so hard to build up. Why not indulge a little? For the greater good. Look at verse number nine, we'll be done again. There is none greater in the house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph counted the cost, and the deciding factor had nothing to do with Joseph's personal gain, but God's eternal glory. Joseph was a man of integrity before he was a man of reputation. Your reputation is what man thinks about you, whereas your integrity is what God knows about you. So let me ask you, what about you tonight? If you're not taking a test, offenses will come. Luke chapter 17 says it, guaranteed, mark it down. If you lay your head on your pillow tonight and you're not facing a temptation, be assured it's coming tomorrow. We are going to face temptation, and it's a powerful thing. When the test of prosperity and purity come, let me ask you tonight, will you respond like Joseph did? We're going to stand and we're going to have a brief moment of invitation. And we're going to spend some time praying. Maybe you need to come and you need to ask God to give you strength because you don't have it within yourself to refute temptation. Joseph didn't. Maybe some of you need to come and you need to ask God to give you some discernment, some conviction. Conviction is, is authoritative based on the, upon the word of God and what the word of God says in absolute. But maybe you need to develop some standards and have enough sense not to even go to the source of temptation, not even to be around it like Joseph did. That was Joseph's wisdom. His wisdom is found in his, not his ability to overcome temptation because he couldn't. He didn't even want to be around it. So tonight, we're going to face those tests. And the only way that we're going to respond, or excuse me, glean the results that Joseph gleaned is by responding like Joseph responded. And so, if the Lord speaks to you tonight, you can come. We'll have just a brief moment of invitation. And if you're not going to come forward, I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, get your list out and begin praying over those right now. (laughs) 